You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kylo Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, yet again, Paul Doroshenko. Once again, it's a distant uh, recording podcast, but this time because you're in another country. I'm often in another country, and today is no exception. Anyway, well, that's great. I'm uh, sitting here in the office, uh, keeping uh, holding down the fort. Yeah, you're uh, you're keeping six. And I'm, and I'm enjoying it. I have to say, since we moved to our new office, I'm uh, I'm greatly relaxed. It's really changed my life. I'm very happy about it. Oh, I thought you were like I'm enjoying not having you around. <laughs> no, well, I mean, you know, this is there's the good and the bad, right? You get a lot done, and uh, it's lovely to see you every day, but it's also, you're moving so fast that uh, it forces my blood pressure to increase. Yeah. So That's why I'm in another country, so that my blood pressure goes back down to normal. Yeah. Well, enjoy yourself there. Anyway, nice to see you, and uh, I'm glad to get the podcast moving. We have lots to cover this week. We have so much to cover. Last week, we talked about Jeremy Maddock and the innovation sandbox comments that were made in the quarantine act case that he brought and sort of how that related in some ways to driving law, um, including the pursuit of economic interests um, and section seven of the charter. And there were comments, apparently Mr. Maddock is a listener to the podcast. Um, He wasn't exactly pleased with uh, our coverage of the issue, uh, sent a link to a Rebel News uh, interview that was done with him about the same uh, the same case. And said, if you want, you know, an accurate description of the case, listen here. Hold yourself out in public. You gotta expect that you're going to be discussed in public. Yeah, I mean, and and I appreciate that, like you know, you have a different perspective about a case when you litigate it. And you also, you know, when you are the litigant, you lack objectivity in the same way that you would have it if you were counsel or a representative. And also have feelings about it uh, because you know a bunch of things that, you know, didn't yeah. come out in one way or another. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not taking it. I don't assume that the court's always correct. That's for darn sure. And I would say that, like, if people have questions about it, they can certainly reach out to Jeremy. He's on Twitter and he is responsive with engagement on Twitter. So, but he's, he's come up again. <laughs> he's come up again. And I almost was like, you know, he was upset and I don't think we should talk about it. But this case is so important to this, this driving law and representation <clears throat> and traffic court question that I don't think we can not talk about it in the driving law podcast. So this is the well, case. Of- funny because you and I thought of lots of reasons that um, you would not want somebody who was either a paralegal or not a lawyer, not governed by the law society in traffic court. And yeah, well, it seems that the court's coming up with more reasons than we thought. Yeah. So let's, 
talk about it a little bit because when we originally talked about the innovation sandbox and even when I published some articles about it and about specifically his approval within the context of the innovation sandbox, he made some comments to me, I believe also in response to the podcast, saying that the Law Society um, was working with the chief judge of the provincial court to give him an exemption so that he would be allowed to represent people in court in the sense that he would be able to go and like actually litigate the cases, not just do some hallway discussions with the officer and potentially be a compellable witness in that context and all of those concerns that we talked about, about not having the privilege protection. And he made it sound, and the Law Society's published initial letter to him made it sound as though this was like a sure thing that was going to happen. And, you know, I've kept an eye on it. I've never seen any further information, but, you know, whether or not the chief judge or the provincial court would publish that such an exemption was granted or such an agreement was reached with the Law Society, I don't know. So, you know, I just assumed that things would transpire as they would. Never saw him in traffic court, but of course we've been in a pandemic, so me. (laughs) And then this case comes up. Now, this is the case of Cross. Uh, It's a a decision out of Abbotsford. Uh, It's 2022 BCPC 177. And Mr. Cross was charged under the Quarantine Act. So not with a traffic ticket, He was charged under the Federal Quarantine Act um, with a violation for entering Canada without wearing a mask. Yeah. Among, I think, other things. But um, apparently there were defenses to the charge. But the issue that the court had to deal with in this case, and you can read it um, to learn more, uh, is that Mr. Maddock was appearing in court attempting to act as his agent and represent him by providing legal services in litigation in a quarantine act case. A traffic court where he's normally acting, um, but a quarantine act case because I guess. Yeah. I mean, it is a ticket. It's a federal contravention ticket, right? So it is a ticket, but it's not a traffic ticket. And this is what the judge, the judge had to resolve two things. Was he entitled to act for tickets that were not tickets being prosecuted under the Provincial Offense Act? Yeah. That is Federal Quarantine Act tickets or, you know, fisheries or wildlife or boating tickets. I don't know. <laughs> There's all sorts of. The normal ones, fisheries that we end up yeah. seeing. Um, and secondly, whether or not. The innovation sandbox actually prevented him from acting in traffic court anyway, or prevented him to act in traffic court anyway. So on the first issue, the judge, and it was a BC provincial court judge, found that he can't appear in a quarantine act case. He says that... Interesting, because we get all the facts now. We find out a bunch... A bunch of what's gone on with the law society um, and some of these injunctions and such things that have taken place. He's he's uh, Mr. Maddock is bound by an injunction. Yep. Yeah. So he says in paragraph 20 of the judgment, and I'm going in backwards order of how the judge addressed them, but he says at paragraph 20 of, of the judgment, I cannot be seen to facilitate a breach of Justice Shergill's injunction. 
That injunction clearly states that until Mr. Maddock becomes a member of the law society, he is prohibited from engaging in the practices law, including appearing as counsel or advocate. I am a judge toiling in the vineyards of justice in provincial court, and I am bound by orders of a superior court. The superior court order has not been varied or overturned at the time. And then he says, look, like even if, even assuming the law society's no action letters on the basis of the sandbox were sufficient to get around an injunction, even assuming that they were, it doesn't permit him to do anything other than appearing in matters dealing with the Provincial Offense Act in traffic court. Yep. And the Quarantine Act tickets are not prosecuted in traffic court. They are not under a provincial statute. Yep. So, so it, a, a reach too far. Um, or too but far. If you look at um, what he's trying to do here, he's trying to do more than he could do, even if it was in traffic court. Yeah. Because he's attempting to appear as counsel. Yep. On a on a case, and one is wondering if that's what he's normally doing or attempting to do in traffic court. And now that we have some clarity here about the restrictions that are on him, uh, one would imagine that the uh, the uh, judicial justices in traffic court are going to be looking differently if they see him mulling about in the courtroom. Yep. 100%. And uh, it, it's interesting that we have more information. I'd love to have the rest of the information, but you and I have said many times, why doesn't he get called? And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, maybe he's got some reason that he can't. Uh, maybe there's something that's prohibited him from being called that we don't know about that's never been disclosed. Like what? You never know. Charge? <clears throat> What's that? Like some criminal charge? I well, mean... no, something something in his past or something, something in dealings with the law society. Who knows? I mean, no. we don't know, but we have more history now. Usually, if you allow some time to pass, you rehabilitate yourself, even if you had something crappy in your background. You can get over that. Like, I mean, he's been he's been fighting this battle for the better part of a decade now. And so it doesn't make sense to me that like he couldn't just wait, fix whatever, if if you're correct, fix whatever it is that's that's you know keeping him from being called. Like, I don't know. To me, it's I, I have no idea. I'm just saying, like, I'm I I'm really starting to wonder because the uh you know the path for him to practice law is wide open. There's never been a clear indication in any of the information that I've seen that would tell me why he refused to go that route. Um, he has known lawyers who he worked with, who he could have articled with. Um, it's not a shortage of articles or something like that. Probably and at some point could have applied for a job at our office. <laughs> we probably would have hired him. We wouldn't now. We, you know, we would have at some point. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, is it, is it purely an ideological thing where he just hates the law society? Um, to understand people coming to that conclusion or is it, or is it, uh, is it, um, it, is it something else that's not disclosed? I mean, there's so much more of the story here yeah. in this decision that, you know, okay, you're not always following all the facts of somebody's life in, in litigation. <laughs> 
but uh, you know, there's some of the story here, and it's uh, it's fascinating to see it. Yeah. So the other question, the other very interesting question is, can he even get around the injunction by getting the big check mark from the law society through the innovation sandbox? And the judge doesn't completely decide it. Like he doesn't make a formal ruling on this issue, but he does say, I don't think it's sufficient. And he says, essentially, like the injunction stands. The law society doesn't have, you know, they have their injunction from BC Supreme Court. They yeah. could go in because they're one of the litigants. They're the litigant who sought the injunction. They could go in and, and do that. He could yeah. ask to do that. He but, could he could apply to court for a variation of the injunction. And the law society can agree not to enforce the injunction in the sense that the law society cannot take steps to report any type of, of contempt criminally or pursue civil contempt remedies. But at the end of the day, the court, and I think this might be the holdup with the approval from the chief judge, the court, their hands are tied. They cannot permit him to do something in contravention of a BC Supreme Court injunction, even if the law society is like, we don't care. Somebody's yeah. got to go to court and be like, we need to rescind this injunction or or modify this injunction. I cannot be seen to facilitate a breach of Justice Shergill's injunction granted January 21st, 2020. Yep. So that's basically, it seems to be where it stands. Uh, this uh, decision went around our office and all the lawyers were commenting on it on our, on our internal uh, chat, which is, uh, I have to tell you, it's one of the funnest things of the office is the inter- internal chat. And the uh, the line that everybody enjoyed was, where is it now? I can't see it. I, I am, I am it. Uh, but a lowly provincial court justice toiling in the vineyards or something like that. Yes. And uh, one sort of hope that he would just, the, the 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 judge here would just continue the metaphor, <laughs> and we'd have some more. No grapes for you. From, from more, yeah, exactly. No grapes for you. Or who's operating the stamping machine, the the grape crushing machine, and who gets to enjoy the wine? <laughs> um, the, uh, I guess the lawyers for now. Oh. Meta- metaphors are fun. Um, the uh, there's always that famous case from Alberta from the master talking about the pecking order. Yeah, and the big peckers and the little peckers in the pecking order of the bench. I try to I try to drop peckers in court as often as I can. But <laughs> just so you can just cite that case, it was uh, one of those things from law school that we had to uh, we had to uh, all be taught. Yeah, moving on. Um, yesterday uh, on Thursday, a judicial review decision was released um, in the case of Brar. Uh, Satwinder Singbrar and Superintendent of Motor Vehicles, uh, uh, Justice Ahmad, um, and very interesting case and sort of exemplative of some of the very common, um, I almost want to call them like rookie mistakes that get made in conducting IRP hearings, setting up IRP defenses, <clears throat> and running judicial reviews. Yeah, so this was a, a case where there was an accident and the person was very likely uh, seriously injured. I don't even think there was an issue about that. 
uh, the driver in the accident and uh, was asked to provide a sample into an approved screening device uh, and uh, failed to do so, although made some attempts at first and then discontinued the attempts. And I think the lawyer who ran the the uh, original one, we don't know who did it, um, who conducted the original hearing, probably just assumed just because the guy was injured that uh, that this was going to be an easy peasy and uh, pull it off. But there was a big problem in the in the police evidence that appears was not covered and the adjudicator. Well, there were right two, two big problems. Um, the first was that Mr. Brar was alleged by the police officer to have initially said to the police that he didn't drink very much um, and that his last drink was like a few hours or something before he was in the accident. And then later had said to the police, he actually drank after the collision, which, you know, is generally viewed as obstruction drinking after driving. It's also illegal. um, If you drink to get over 80 after ceasing to operate a motor vehicle. But it's also the big lie. The big lie. It's the big contradiction. It's the thing that people think is going to provide them with some out when when their blood or breath is tested because they they weren't drunk at the time of driving and they were drank afterward. And it's probably because of something they saw on TV or something a lawyer told them once that sort of they constructed in a way in their brain. that that, It was uh, an episode of LA Law that this happened, actually. Yeah. But it was Um, known before that episode of LA Law. We knew it when I was young. Oh, hey. Long before I was a lawyer. Yeah. Well, anyway, so Mr. Barr never addresses this in his evidence. Like he provides an affidavit and he says, you know, due to my internal bleeding and my cracked ribs, I was in pain. Like the pain was so bad. It was like a knife cutting through my body. Like all this stuff about how much it hurt him to blow and how much excruciating pain he was in. But in order for the adjudicator to accept that he wasn't able to provide a sample on the basis of his medical evidence or medical condition following the collision. The adjudicator had to believe that he was experiencing those symptoms while he was attempting to blow. Because it's one thing to be injured, and it's another thing entirely for your injuries to have impacted your ability to provide a sample into the device, which is what you have to prove, right? Got to establish that. It's, and you this can't is lay out the injuries and say nothing. You've got to establish that it affected your, impacted your ability to meet the parameters of the. And this is one of the, the problems that I see a lot, like looking at decisions where people hire me after they've you know represented themselves or they've had somebody else represent them in the hearing, is that understanding what are the elements that you have to prove and how the pathway to proving those in the review hearing, very difficult. Well, the problem is that some of these things, um, you know, like in a case like this, it's readily apparent. This was like there in front of whoever was assisting with the affidavit um, and that it had to be dealt with. The the issue here, there's I mean, there's a couple of issues. There may have been no way to deal with it because the guy just like was lying um, at at the roadside, at which point, you know, but assuming assuming, but some explanation would be useful. (laughs) But, and this is the other the other yeah. like rookie mistake as I've characterized it is on judicial review. The lawyer argued, well, it could be inferred that because he was, you know, in in a state of shock following the collision and he was, you know, disoriented following the collision, that he said these things because he was confused. But well, that, that, that's that. the lawyer trying to relitigate, though. Yeah, that's, the, that's the mistake the lawyer made here. 
So relitigate the case on judicial review. You have to point to a flaw in the reasoning. But the point here is this, um, that I wanted to get to that you just interrupted me on. There's so often as a lawyer that, you know, we're conducting these things and we look at it and we look at other people's uh, judicial reviews, not necessarily this one. And you say to yourself, well, man, the, the adjudicator is just stretched so far to, to find something to reject the person's evidence. And that's normally like our complaint. And it's the reason that we try and cover everything because we have lost, right? <laughs> we don't, if we won in every one, that would be lovely, but it also would have the scheme would be completely uh, collapsing, um, which probably should in any event. But here, um, this is uh, this is you know something that is pretty obvious that the adjudicator was going to latch on to because they so often will latch on to statements made at the roadside to uh, reject a person's contention later on. And this statement at the roadside, I mean, it might have been just a one-liner in the police report that that counsel and overlooked or didn't read it carefully enough to get to. But again, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it also could be a certain. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I keep wanting to explain it by saying it's a circumstance where there was it was just an outright lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, as you say. Um, that could have been dealt with too, just by explaining, look, I was just, I was in shock. The adrenaline was running. Uh, I was trying to, uh, trying to explain to the officer that I couldn't provide a sample and I, because of the injury, but I didn't even realize it was because of the injury at that point. And I wanted him to, to take the microscope off me. Uh, I didn't want to be in the spotlight anymore. And I yeah. thought maybe that would work because I saw it on LA law. And that would have been, <laughs> no, that would have been, or I heard about it. That would have been actually a, something that you're going, okay, well, right. Well, I could see a person doing that. It's not not outside of the scope of normal human behavior. Yeah. But that's at the hearing level. So then we get to the petition level um, and the judicial review and, of course, the argument that's made there. Yeah. And on judicial review... Um, it's, you know, it's this, again, this sort of attempt to relitigate the case to say, well, the adjudicator should have decided it this way. I don't like the way the adjudicator decided this case. It should have been this and, and not putting the proper evidentiary foundation for the court. I mean, the court also criticized well, the evidence. before the tribunal, right? Sorry, yes. Um, The court also criticized the evidence that was submitted by the applicant for not even addressing the blowing behavior that the officer alleged, which is like how many, like we did Kuzmanovich, Jauhal, Wyshewski. There's also, uh, what's the one that's escaping me right now? Um, Also starts with, anyway, whatever. There's like half a dozen, uh, McNeil. Um, There's like half a dozen cases that have all dealt with this question of like blowing behavior. And if an adjudicator accepts evidence of a person's obstructive blowing behavior, the intention to refuse is made out. And again, there was no evidence about what the adjudicator was saying about how he was blowing. Now you could look at the evidence. You could look at what he said about his pain and everything. And the officer was saying he'd blow out with a lot of force and then suck back in really quickly. Like, it's easy to see if you talk to your client, were you doing this because you were so shocked from the pain that you had to take a deep breath in and like, you know. You started blowing and then suddenly you had a, a sharp pain. And right? 
you know, leading you to suck back. That yeah. would make sense. Yeah. But it's an issue of fleshing that out in the affidavit, I guess. And it wasn't done. And then again, you know, on the judicial review, counsel tries to to say, well, intention is an element. And the adjudicator dealt with intention by accepting the evidence of the officer. The interesting thing is you go through these decisions when you get them and you can almost always find a good legal argument to argue. And then you could take this and shuffle it in there. Right. Um, but, uh, the, uh, you know, I, when I read them, I don't spot those legal arguments the way that you do. Um, and even though you send me every one of these decisions and I read every one of those, these decisions, I just don't have that brain to spot that legal argument the way that you do. And so I would love to read the original uh, adjudicator's decision. Sometimes the judge will quote the whole thing in the case, uh, or it'll be somehow attached, and we don't have it here. So we're just going on the basis of the BC Supreme Court judge's uh, review decision here. But the uh, the argument is swiftly dealt with, I guess, because the uh, uh, there wasn't really a legal issue here. It was just a, a request to relitigate, which is something that was long before Babylon has been since long before the, the IRP's gone of time. This is uh, 25 years ago, but I guess, you know, people are frustrated because they think to themselves, look, I mean, you can imagine the instructions you get from your client. Look, I'm, I'm, I was in a bad accident. Look at these bad injuries I had, you know, how, how is it that, that they're upholding this? Well, you know, they're upholding it because it looked like you were jerking them around and then you lied to them. Yeah. Um, now, Paul, we don't have a ridiculous driver of the week this week. I'm sorry. Um, and the reason is I wanted to talk about something that's quite serious and very concerning. And I thought about calling it the ridiculous driver of the week, but I think that that does a disservice to the person who is suffering as a result of this. Well, we don't have all the facts in. Uh, and well, we I might saw the video. Yeah. No, I know. I understand the video. I've heard it described. I haven't seen it. But anyway, you better explain it. So as we've talked about before on the podcast, the downtown east side of Vancouver poses a particular hazard for driving, um, in part because uh, there are people who are um, experiencing mental health issues and who are uh, sometimes on a lot of drugs, who don't really pay attention to or are aware of the road signs, crosswalks, the presence of traffic. The city of Vancouver well, has lowered the speed limit on Hastings to try and make it so that it's safer for people in that community. Um, and unfortunately, earlier this week, a man who was likely using drugs at the time was standing in the middle of the road on Hastings. Bent over. Bent in, over. In, in but rough shape. Clear as day that he was there. It wasn't so dark that he couldn't be seen. Well, it's pretty well lit right there, too, right? Yep. And a police vehicle, Vancouver police car, proceeded down Hastings and drove without slowing or attempting to stop straight into the man, sending him flying. And uh, he's in serious condition in the hospital since those. So a marked police vehicle and um, there's a few lanes open and this guy is standing close to the center um, and uh, he is struck. And I would estimate looking at the speed of the other vehicles on the road there, because there's 
traffic going the opposite direction, um, assuming that they're going roughly the speed limit. If there's a taxi goes the other direction. I would say this the the speed of this police cruiser was at least 50 kilometers an hour. Yeah. I looked at it. I watched the video several times. And of course, you and I are both trained in speed estimation. Uh, it's more difficult to do from a video because of distortion. But well, you have no idea if the video sped up, slowed down, all sorts of things. But looking at the way everybody else is moving. And the other thing is, of course, you're looking at it from the side, um, which is a different perspective than you do with speed estimation. But it's going to be easy to calculate, right? Because you yeah. can see that the, the speed it does not look to be altered. And all you have to do is calculate the distance from the yeah. the crosswalk <laughs> when it's the crosswalk to the point of striking him. The police vehicle um, was not going 30 kilometers an hour. Not a chance. Not a chance. And no, no lights on. No lights. No. It's uh, and like this no, is no, no emergency lights, rather just the headlights. It's a very serious issue because you know not only is there a problem with police vehicles in Vancouver generally consistently exceeding the speed limit. Um, well, I mean, I see police officers very often violating the law. And for what I can see is no damn good reason. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, there was a unmarked police vehicle in front of Home Depot parked in a spot that was just impeding traffic. Officer, a spot right behind them they could have backed up to so they wouldn't impede traffic. Officer with his foot on the ground. And it looks like the two officers are chatting. No reason to be parked there. Just sort of arrogant stupidity, maybe. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, back in the day when I used to, uh, be driving to Beatty Street. Thank God I don't have to drive downtown anymore. <laughs> I go downtown so rarely now. We're on the edge of downtown. And we only have to go downtown for traffic court. It's just like a huge stress off me. But um, driving to Beatty Street, I used to see the police run the stop sign all the time and do the illegal left-hand turn to circle around to get on the Canby Bridge. Well, I see all them I see them frequently at the intersection um, of like Seventh and Kingsway, Broadway and Kingsway, and Twelfth and Kingsway, where they will, and the other streets in between there, Tenth and Eleventh, um, they will turn their lights on to proceed through the intersection, and then turn their lights off once they've gone through at a red light. There can be reasons to do that, but unfortunately, the the perception that we get um, as people who are monitoring the police and we're not, we're not police haters by any means, but the perception you get is just like, you know, what we see in this video, like just driving along thinking I'm a cop and I can just drive however the hell I want. I can break the rules throughout the day as it suits me because I'm not going to get a ticket. And I can always claim that it was some duty reason. Um, when uh, I suspect, you know, most of us think that it's, uh, it's to, to, meet up with the other officers for a few beers at the end of the shift. <laughs> well, it's, you know, and the public perception in the downtown east side right now is a huge problem because there is a huge divide in Vancouver and a huge, a huge population of people who live in the downtown east side who feel that the police are there to harm them. Whether that is the case or not, that's how the community feels. Well, there were some people who were interviewed about this who, who were down there living on the street there um, who said the police, you know, tape showed up. They took this individual to the hospital and he has been released from hospital, um, which is shocking when you see the uh, the collision. Um, but um, that the police tape went up and a couple hours later it was gone. 
And so they all kind of came to the conclusion that it was the uh, speediest investigation ever, um, which is another another problem. Um, but, you know, they probably have all the evidence they need. I, I always like to try and give the police the benefit of the doubt. And I think a lot of this bad driving may be them thinking to themselves, I have to use my time very carefully for the population. And it's appropriate for me to defy the law here break the law because I'm doing my duty as a police officer. Um, that, uh, that should be taught out of police um, because they should understand they're always being watched and we're all looking at them and it undermines the confidence in the justice system. Well, it'll be very interesting to see if there's any tickets issued, charges laid, police act investigations as a result of this. Um, we're going to keep an eye on it on the Driving Law pod. And we will update our listeners as we learn more. That's great, Kyla. Thanks. Yeah, and that's our podcast. So if you have any driving law related questions, you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.